0: All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now. Please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center,
2: Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. You're listening to Cyber Law Business Report. Please be seated. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica um la area is bracing for another visit by president obama um who knows maybe he'll stop by the studio not likely but um in any event we still have a good show for you today and uh, we have um carl kronenberg returns with yet another uh, victory story on the, the spam front and then we're going to have news updates in the second half hour um, and today is actually the anniversary. I believe it. Do my math correctly. The um, the 40th anniversary of U.S. v. Nixon, where a unanimous Supreme Court said that President Nixon had to turn over um, the t- the Watergate tapes, and that ultimately led to um, his demise and resignation as president. So, um, Carl, are
3: you with us? I am with you. Um, thanks for inviting me, Bennett. Thank you. We
2: have Carl Cronenberg. Carl Cronenberg is the, um, the um, founding partner of Cronenberg Rosenfeld, one of the leading Internet law firms in the space. And um, <laughs> the, um, he has been um, very active in spam litigation, and he's been on our show multiple times. And, um, and he actually just recently won a victory in uh, a class action case. Um, and an important case because they had quite an extensive discussion on the issue of what constitutes a, a subject line that violates California's email um, stat, statute. And um, so, Carl, why don't you tell us a bit about this case?
3: Sure. Well, for, why don't we start off with the fact that the class action lawsuit, uh, and that's you know, we haven't seen that
2: many of them so far, surprisingly.
3: You haven't and it's it's a little concerning because you know somebody gets one or two emails and then they're making allegations on behalf of a class and demanding a thousand dollars for thousands or tens of thousands of emails to the entire class of people um, these recipients received so it's the 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 um, damages are sort of mind boggling um, uh, and they're all statutory uh, so it's 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 a concern, and I, I, I personally think that you're you're going to see more of these. You know, there there is one out in Los Angeles that, that I think that they filed a, a motion for preliminary approval of a settlement on a class action basis. Um, so once that is, once the judge sort of approves or denies that, we'll, that'll be um, an interesting uh, reference point for everybody who follows uh, this area of the law.
2: I mean, if you think about it,
3: Carl. You know, this
2: the statute. Well, um, well, the amended statute is what about eighty or nine years old now, and um, it's just surprising that it's it's taken this long.
3: That's right. I, I think it, it's the, the big reason why I don't think you see a lot of class actions is that I just don't think that the statute was designed for plaintiffs to bring claims on a class basis. You've got these huge statutory damages of $1,000 dollars per email. And you know with emails, uh, you know, you know, some people are getting you know, 100, 500 emails a day from all different types of friends and uh, businesses and marketers. and so uh, the, the, the damages in most class action claims are many times the worth of the defendants. So it just it doesn't really make sense. I don't think that the statute was designed for it. So it is a little bit of a disturbing trend that all of a sudden you've got these class-action complaints popping up. And so um, in this case, tell us a little bit about the plaintiff.
2: He's not one of our usual suspects.
3: That's right. Uh, The case is uh, Nicholas Bontrager versus Showmark Media. I represented Showmark Media. Uh, Mr. Bontrager is an attorney. Uh, and he was also represented by counsel in this case. But um, I think it's, it's interesting to note that an attorney is the one suing here. Uh, the attorney received an email, and the email had the subject line, Lawyer Media, comma Top Lawyers in California. So that was the subject line, and, and Mr. Bontrager brought a class action lawsuit alleging uh, that that subject line was misleading, and that he wanted $1,000 for that email, uh, statutory damages, and he wanted $1,000 for every other person in California, actually mostly attorneys <laughs> who received these emails. Uh, he wanted $1,000 for, uh, for uh, every email that was sent to an attorney in California. So we're talking millions of dollars in, in damages in this complaint.
2: And coincidentally, I just
3: got that email this week. Oh, really? Okay, well, you would have been in the uh, class. You would have been... <laughs> Damn you, Carl. <laughs> uh, so, well, let's talk about what, what, what the email is about. Uh, because it was about um, a, a a plaque that you could buy that reflected how you are a top lawyer in California. And it said it was $159 with shipping and handling. And um, that that was the offer. So, but Mr. Bontrager, after reading both the subject line and the content of the email, thought that, or I guess was, misled. That's what he told the court. He was misled by this. Um, So, the court, um, you know, we filed a motion to dismiss, which is something very early in the case. And there's a high burden on a motion to dismiss because you assume the facts as alleged by the plaintiff are true.
2: Right, and then also, the time- and, and you were moved to the federal court, and in federal court, the general standard is what is called notice pleading. As long as the claim is, you know, it is enough to put the other side on notice of what the claim is, it should it should proceed.
3: That's right. That's right. Um, so we we got this in the federal court, and we filed a motion to dismiss um, this this claim, and and our argument was that this didn't violate uh, the California statute because it, it wasn't misleading uh, if to, to reasonable people and the statute says uh, that there's a violation if the, if the subject if the subject line is likely to mislead a recipient about a material fact regarding the contents or the subject matter of the message and the judge agreed with us and the judge dismissed this uh, claim the spam claim with prejudice, so they couldn't they couldn't bring it again. They couldn't amend their complaint. And when you uh, and it's interesting because the judge went really went into the law. And this is a this is a long opinion. This is a you know an eighteen page opinion about subject lines.
2: Right. It, that's some that is extensive.
3: Yeah. So um. It, so the judge went through a lot of the case law and sort of and really went into the mechanics of the statute. And, and, and how you do an analysis of whether or not a subject line violates, violates the statute. And I, 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 to, to, to try to give it to you in a nutshell, it's really not about whether or not this, the subject line is, uh, is um, truthful or, fa- uh, or if it's false. It's about whether or not someone would be misled if they read that subject line, uh, about what's in the email itself. So right. let's look at this, this, uh, this uh, email. Um, it said, in the subject line, it didn't say there's anything free. It didn't say that there was going to be a free plaque or anything like that. It just said lawyer media, top lawyers. Uh, and of course, Mr. Bontrager was not alleging that he was not a top lawyer. <laughs> That would have been an interesting argument if he would have, uh, you know, said, "Well, I'm a horrible lawyer, and therefore I was misled because," um, uh, it said, you know, it used the term top lawyer, um, so, uh, when you when you compare the subject line to the content of the email, it it's consistent, it matches up, and and for that reason, the judge said there was no violation of the statute. Um, now. Bennett, you know you've seen a lot of these cases, and and you know, you've also seen probably a lot of bad subject lines. I mean, the ones that that are, that just jump out at you is, is when it says something's free, right. not, When there's an implication that it's free,
2: but it's not. Free. But I've also seen, and I think somewhat of the, I think some of the plaintiffs' bar has has definitely, um, I think, uh, it, t- done a fair amount of legal yoga. In terms of the the degree to which they've stretched this argument, um, you know, I think recall one plaintiff I believe said that it was an offer for a loan, and that that was deceptive and confusing because it led him to believe that he owned a house and he didn't.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I think the, one of the counsel quipped, "Then well, will imagine what would happen if he received an ad about a, a women's products." But. um... <laughs> <laughs> But um, and so I, I, you know, I do think that it, there has been a need for some kind of case law and clarity here, just because of the kind of um, the divorce from reality standard that it seems the the plaintiffs' bar was really trying to set forth as what what you know could be arguably um, a deceptive subject line. And do That's you right. think this this ruling will rein that in at all?
3: I, I really hope it it will. I mean, we we see so many of these sort of shakedown operations uh, where you know p- people think that they can just print their emails out, file a complaint in court court and get some money. And um, hopefully, this raises the bar when it comes to subject lines. Um, I I thought it was fairly clear. Um, I mean, the subject lines and fairly benign. Uh, What I see out there a lot is where you have a subject line that says something like, how are you, or what's up, you know, when there's an implication of a friendship, like like someone you know of a personal acquaintance, Uh, or something like, you know, we just deposited money into your bank account. Um, Click to find out more, things that are just just flat out wrong and false and false. uh, so this seemed to be so benign, and I, I must say that y- you're seeing more and more of these of, of these arguments about benign subject lines violating the statute statute, especially when you know when you've got all the Trancos arguments, and plaintiffs can say, well, we have like we have three different arguments on why this is <laughs> this violates the statute: one, the subject line is misleading, uh, and two, uh, there's this from line. That's generic, and three, the who is uh, record is protected. Um, so you're seeing more and more of that, and we're and it, hopefully these decisions are helping. We've got the Bronfroger decision. Last time I was on the show, we discussed the Dewitt case, which I think you know laid out the law um, for us and it set some some better standards when it when it comes to from names um, and how it affects the Trancos analysis. So I I I hope I, I think and I, I definitely hope that we're that we're raising the bar here and and making it harder for for plaintiffs' attorneys to bring these suits with the, this decision, like in the Bontrager case.
2: Now, do you think that they're going to? Because um, you know, in the past, when they've not succeeded, um, they've thought about of you know going to the legislature to try to make it easier. And you know, the California legislature has been fairly friendly to the plaintiffs' bar. Um, you know this. It, do you think it's bad enough that they might actually feel they have to get rescued from Sacramento?
3: Um, possibly, but I, I have to ask the question: How much worse could it get? <laughs> you know, it's—I I think it's a pretty bad statute myself. A thousand dollars is a ridiculous amount right. of money. And statutory damages—it's a one-sided attorney's fees provision. Um, you've got sort of this strict liability that's um, laid out in the statute and that's supported by various case law out there. I think it's, I think there are major problems with the statute and I don't know how it could get much worse. Now, of course, uh, I shouldn't underestimate the creativity of plaintiff's lawyers.
1: Right. Up I, there.
2: I, I, I forget the, uh, the the version. I mean, there was a version that, you know, Balsam working with, um, uh, I guess, uh, that was faced with a state senator or assemblyman, then Leno, um, that was went to the governor's desk but was vetoed in, I think, 2008.
3: We should go back and look at that. You know, there, there's also a possibility that some of the the arguments that they made were actually um, contained and, and affirmed in case law, like the Value Click case, um, uh, where it sort of laid out sort of strict liability. Because that, that, that's, that, that's, that's one of the best things that the plaintiffs have going for them with this statute is that is that you do have this strict liability for advertisers um, uh, even if, you know, they never saw uh, and really had no input into sort of crafting and the sending of these emails. So there's a possibility that it could have been, but that, but that, uh, that may be uh, uh, an interesting thing to take a look at, and I, th- I think I'll do that next time on the show we'll talk about it. Yeah,
2: I mean, I'm, I'm trying to pull up... Um... You my my good friend's website, and um, and to see what it is that he said about the bill. And um, mm-hmm. although he uh, he's alter- it's, uh, alternatively he said that he wrote it and didn't write it. So his website says this is why I co-wrote a stronger anti-spam law for California's Senate member Jared Hoffman. But um, in in a brief, I believe he's he said that he did not write it. Um, so it's interesting how it, his memory sometimes changes, but um the uh, the what were the key things that he had? He has a one pager, and um, so it the, the key provisions I believe it would um, provide examples of falsity and deception, outstanding for district attorneys and city attorneys, and that was for the one plaintiff who was the city attorney for Los Angeles. I believe, yes. Um, right. Um, add uh, allows courts to order injunctions, and um, I what were the other key provisions, though. Um, I think it, it was to lower the bar for him to um, have standing, or something. There was something that would basically he lost a few cases and. And so he, when he lost, he therefore concluded that it was a loophole. He said we have to close these loopholes. And um, so we're going to take a, um, a break, and um, when we come back, we'll talk about a little bit about the, the, that statute and um, talk about some of the Carl's work um, in this area. After these messages, you're listening to Cyber Law Business Report, uh, only on Webmaster radio and um, iHeart Radio.
4: Call 312-560-0175 or visit AffiliateOffersNetwork.com.
5: I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to That's RADIO two two one six nine one for Moby Mantis.
4: Mark and Robin sponsor seller meetup groups, share shipping tips and tricks through social media, and always love talking to customers and helping solve shipping challenges. Check out the website at bubblefast.com. Sign up for the Bubble Briefs newsletter to join the Bubble Fast family. Use promo code WMR to get a 5% discount or call Mark and Robin at 877 599 7447. Happy shipping from Mark and Robin at Bubble Fast.
0: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
2: And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center. I have Carl Cronenberger back and um, with Cronenberger Rosenfeld in San Francisco. And Carl... um, we have the president today. You don't. But, um, but you have a victory we're talking about, and um, I think that's a, a fair trade. <laughs> so um, you won not just on the spam count, but there's also a count that dealt with um, basically two other statutes. Why don't you fill us in on that?
3: Yeah, this is um, you know, what I sometimes call one of those kitchen sink com- uh, complaints where everything's thrown in uh, that they could possibly claim. So uh, in addition to claiming that that this, this, you know, it's one email that said lawyer media, top lawyers in California, Um, in addition to um, that that email violating the spam statute, they said it violated the unfair competition uh, law statute and it also violated the false advertising um, statute in California. Uh, so I thought that was interesting um, to see how the judge dealt with that. Uh, I, th- I think, first, there are there no money damages here. And, um, you know, we argued there needed to be some sort of damages in order to have claims under these statutes. Uh, the And most importantly, the UCL, unfair competition law statute, They're they're not, it's really restitution and not damages. And you can't get restitution here because he didn't buy anything. Right there, there, there's there's nothing that that, that, um, that could be the basis for restitution, um, and um, the, the 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 plaintiff argued that he wanted injunctive relief that that was that was also a remedy. So even though that there maybe there's no actual damages, he, he still wants injunctive relief. But the judge said, you need to be injured in some way in order to get injunctive relief. There has to be some loss of money or loss of property to get injunctive relief. Now, he, he made the arguments. He said that it wasted his time, that it took up excessive bandwidth that he was using to actually download this one email. Right. Um, and the judge just was not buying it and uh, spent a, you know a good amount of time laying out the case law in this area, because usually you don't see these sort of claims in spam complaints. Usually there are these rifle shot claims that just involve the spam statute. Um, so the judge spent a good amount of time laying out the law and said, you know, there's, there's no injury in fact. Uh, there's no loss of money, no loss of property, and there's no way that there could have been any restitution. So both the unfair competition law claim and the false advertising claim um, were dismissed.
2: So do you do you have a sense and maybe I should ask this question six months from now, after these rulings have really had their impact, but you know, what is the state of the plaintiff's bar in the spam area today? You know, are cases you know, are these are the number of cases changing at all? Um, are the dollar value, are their strategies different? Are uh, they're using superior court more than you know small claims or are they doing class actions now when before they had it what is what is what is the state and how has it changed?
3: Well, I think they're getting they're getting smarter um, and um, they've got a good amount of experience now you know Dan balsam is a um, <clears throat> even though he's a fairly young attorney in terms of being out of school just a few years he's he's a smart guy and and he's got a good amount of experience now, and I feel like he's he's up his game because he's not really bringing claims on his own behalf anymore. It's really on behalf of a bunch of clients and he's 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 filing a lot of cases these days, and they're for uh, larger amounts of money significantly larger you know you know gone are the days when Dan Balsam is asking for a thousand dollars right he's asking for sometimes six and sometimes seven figures in a lot of these cases. And you have some some um, some new players. There's um, this Jacob Harker, an attorney in San Francisco, that's that's um, teaming up with um, uh, Mr. Uh, Balsam and uh, Timothy Walton, who's also a very experienced uh, litigator of these uh, spam claims to be on the plaintiff side. Um, and then you, you uh, another twist here is that you have some players in Southern California. Um, you've got this Jeff, Jeffrey Pollack, who is an experienced um, business litigator, who's who's getting into um, spam litigation. And then, when it comes to class actions, you have the Cavatech firm, very respected class action firm. In fact, I think Mr. Cabotec is head of the uh, Plaintiffs' Attorneys' uh, uh, Organization in California. Um, they're they, you know they're they're getting into what they're filing. And Balsam was co-counsel on that. So I feel like they've They've upped their game, and um, they're they're filing a lot more. I, I, I feel like there's there are a good number of settlements out there. Um, I, uh, at, at the same time, you're slowly getting some of these new decisions out, like the Bontrager case, the DeWitt case. Uh, I think the one thing that could really change things is if a federal court comes in and analyzes the strict liability um, component of this statute, because I think that there's a very good argument that to the extent that you interpret the, the state statute to have strict liability, that that interpretation is preempted by the federal statute. I, and you really need a federal judge to make this big decision. And I, I, I think that that, that that could happen. And it, it, if that does, that would really shake up things on the plaintiff's uh, side. Because the,
2: the strict liability is it would, is. So basically, you know, for those listening, the, um, the California Spam Law um, initially was passed in 2003 to ban all all unsolicited email and 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 even the, then some because um, it was defined so poorly. Congress, 82 days later, Congress passes the CAN-SPAM Act that includes an exception that allows states to regulate email uh, to the extent that it deals with falsity of deception in email. California then uh, amends its statutes to fall within that exception, you know, theoretically. And so your point would be that somehow that by creating strict liability on the advertiser, that they've gone beyond um, regulating falsity and deception, because that that would be the liability of the marketer, presumably. And that by extending it to the advertiser, they're doing something more than that. Is that is that the argument?
3: That's right. That there's some intent component um, in the federal statute, and to the extent that the state statute sort of uh, finds liability without that sort of intent, um, then then that would that would be preempted. And you know, I think some of these Trancos arguments are are, are subject to to. Um, compelling arguments that they're preempted uh, because a, lo- a lot of these, you know, j- just by hiding uh, with privacy protection someone's contact information, does that really rise to the level of something that's um, false deceptive?
2: Yeah, because yeah, it actually it's it could be, still be true, and um, and so yeah, that would not fall within that, I would think. Although Absolutely. I you know yeah. I know the effort you know when right when the statute was passed and right after. You know, the FCC said the whole purpose of having, you know, a, a clear from line is just so they knew who to look up to to sue, and um, and so if you don't know who the email is coming from, you know, you don't know whether to open it, and then once you open it, you don't know who to contact. Although if it's Ken spam compliant, there should be some address.
3: That's right, and I, I think there's also some, some, some language in the Gordon versus Virtumundo case, the Ninth Circuit case, that uh, would support a strong argument um, uh, um, that, that uh, um, hiding contact information you know, behind list protection services cannot um, serve as the, the basis of any sort of liability in the state statute. Um, now there that, was there was a criminal arguments would be preempted. There was a criminal case, cyberheat, I recall,
2: and where the the party had gone to such great lengths to to hide who they were, you know, by registering the domain through like so many different entities, you know, in, in multiple continents, that the court found that you know, that was somehow deceptive, even though it probably was correct. But they did so in a way that it was just so involved to get there, they felt that was deceptive.
3: Well, the Trankos case as well. I mean, in in that case, Trankos went to these uh, great lengths to hide their identity. And then they had the quote, too, that hurt them,
2: where their CEO said, I just want to make sure Dan Balsam can't find out my address.
3: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, but the, the, um but the problem is un, under Gordon versus Virmundo um, you know just obscuring truthful information um, that um, that uh, it, it arguably cannot be the basis of liability under a state statute because um, that does not rise to the level of the falsity or deception which is, which is right. carve out uh, for preemption in canspan so um, okay. Do
2: you think this area will dry up anytime soon, or it's hard to tell? Because, you know, the the plaintiff's bar doesn't respect federal court. They say, well, it's only advisory in state court.
3: Well, except when you're dealing with um, preemption issues.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Then, of course,
3: what the the federal court uh, (laughs) says... um, is going to trump anything that the state court says. Uh, I can see their point. I, I think w- what you really need to look at is the level of analysis in a lot of these cases. Like, for example, this DeBron Trager case is a very well-written decision. Uh, compare it to the value click case a few years ago by the, the state court, uh, which I thought was a horribly written decision. Uh, I don't think it was very well thought out. Or uh, I, So I just think the level of... Um, of writing and, and legal analysis um, with these span cases is so much higher in, in, in federal courts. Now, of course, you do have some state court judges that, that do the thorough analysis um, and have well-written opinions, but for the most part, um, I'm not impressed. <laughs> by, by a lot of the decisions in state court, uh, and that's why I think a lot of defendants sort of gravitate to, to federal court, especially because it's you know it's easier to make the preemption argument.
2: Now, is yeah. is San Francisco the courts up in your area in San Francisco County and Santa Clara County? Are they backed up? I mean, because you know, right now, if I filed a slap motion, which is supposed to be heard on an expedited basis, if I filed that now in you know Santa Monica court or in LA County court. Um, I would get a two fifteen twenty fifteen date. I wouldn't get one for this year, and that's well, for Yeah,
3: it's not as backed up um, up here. I mean, still, you're you're it's you're looking sometimes at three months out, but especially in Marin, for just to try to get a, 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 a hearing date. Um, really, Marin is worse. Yeah, I, I don't know why um, it has been. I, I know that there there have been a number of cases filed in Almeida. <laughs> Uh, recently to yes. report there because I think that's Balsam's um, hub of operations now and there's another oh he's moved he, I I, uh, I I believe so I, I you know I don't want to reveal any personal <laughs> information about where Dan Balsam lives uh, at all you know I, I right. respect him as an attorney and I don't want people going after him um, uh, well, harassing makes, that, him Um that, that
2: makes Um <laughs> <laughs> The um, but the thing about Marin's interesting actually the courthouse is interesting because that's the Frank Lloyd Wright courthouse.
3: That's right. Uh, it's it's a a great courthouse. Um, just in terms of the architecture, uh, sort of built into the the hill there, uh, uh, and um, um, uh, and then you have sort of the Superior Court in, in um, Al- uh Alameda County, which is, uh, um, which which, as I said, is where uh, you see some some complaints filed by Balsam, but also Mr. Dewitt because of, he he lives, I think, in the Berkeley. He's in area. Berkeley. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're seeing you know a number of decisions out of out of that court as well.
2: Yeah, um, and actually, I, you know, we mentioned earlier, I I I to demur against Dewitt recently, and he's appealing that now. So, um,
3: okay. so what's the status of that? Uh, has it, have you started briefing it?
2: We're about to start briefing, I think. We're waiting for the briefing schedule. And, um, but he, you know, I think his, uh, he's going to appeal, because he wasn't granted leave to amend, and I think that's probably going to be the key issue for him. Although you know, he also may challenge, I'm assuming he'll challenge the substantive decision on the, um, on the motion to dismiss. But it really was just a Mickey Mouse complaint, and uh, it just didn't detail anything. I um, lumped together two plans, didn't specify who was responsible for either um, party, and I honestly think my client was mainly there as a way to defeat removal. And um, it really did seem like it was fraudulent joinder. Um, but so, but we'll see, um, and you know, hopefully, maybe we'll get a, a, a well-written decision on that and we'll be able to add to the, the, the growing um, you know, panoply of opinions that are really trying to define this better in, in a more rational way.
3: Well, he's also filed um, an appeal in, in, in the case that I recently had with him um, where my client was Simply Inc., uh, and that was the case we discussed last time I was on, and that was about um, generic from-names. right uh so that notice of appeal has been filed so that looks like that's going to be um i don't think we've got a briefing schedule yet but but that's um that's being teed up right now too uh,
2: is is washington as active as it used to be or is that died with the mr gordon's demise you
3: know you know you don't really hear about it uh, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if there's some sort of low-level spam activity there, where there's sort of smaller demands. Uh, you just don't see um, the cases, uh, the de- you know written decisions coming out of um, Washington um, anymore. It, it, California is it's, it's such a great statute that a lot of uh, plaintiffs in other states are actually using it. You know, I've 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 dealt with plaintiffs in, for example, Georgia. Uh, using it in Georgia court. Hmm. Um, so uh, I, I use the California statute
2: in Georgia court.
3: That's right. For California sender. Wow. You know. um, so and you, you've seen it in other state courts as well. Uh, so uh, I think the smarter plaintiffs would try to figure, you know, find a, a connection to California because you've got the, the statutory damages. You've got the strict liability um, and the uh, you know, the benefits of a lot of case law, um that a lot of and a lot of it is friendly to plaintiffs. That you is can there bring over?
2: Is there any and I know that the the argument has been made and the ample case law that I um, mean you have no duty to mitigate um a crime. And that technically I think this violation is, is this a misdemeanor or is it? I'm trying to remember whether the statute is a misdemeanor as well. But I don't um, think so. I, is I there mean, any duty to you know anything on you know complainants actively can they run into the street so the ambulance hits them so to speak in in this context or have they been doing that?
3: Now this is a this is a big issue um, I I believe because um, there is a a an argument to be made that much of the quote harm and I say uh, I put that in quotes because I don't think there's any real harm. But most of the harm um, that's being suffered by plaintiffs often is is, um, uh, that harm is occurring because they either signed up for the email or didn't sign up for it, but when they got it, they kept kept clicking again and again and again on it, and pretty much every single mail system uh, that's being used today will send you additional emails if you express any sort of interest. And the plaintiffs all know that. So they they wait um, until they receive sometimes hundreds of emails that they received because of their own action. And then they sue on those. And I think that's highly questionable activity. I mean, I think it it violates the um, various principles uh, that that, that are recognized in pretty much every state common law principles about how you cannot um, create the harm and then... Make a, claim, make a claim for relief based
2: on that. Well, and they also, not that they have, they have you know, we talked, they may not have a duty to mitigate, but they have also removed other people's efforts at mitigation. So, for example, you know, I believe that at least one of them um, pays their ISP extra not to filter their email stream so that their email stream includes as much spam as possible. And you know, using that point, you know that would that would seem to be, um, you know, something that you know. They, they they, but for that effort, they wouldn't get some of these emails. So why you know why should they be? You know, basically they're, they're buying liability. Why why should you know? Why should the court enforce that? You
3: you well, you definitely see that with a lot of the old say, spam litigation mills. Um, and I use that term because sometimes courts even used it <laughs> for companies like ACES Internet Services, which we've talked about before on the show. Um, they had an elaborate operation where they were, they were gathering um, emails. They shut off filtering, spam filtering for the entire ISP. And the ISP existed pretty much for the, for the purpose of filing spam suit. And they were getting all these um, emails from so legacy, legacy emails from old customers that were no longer customers, and and then the the uh, um, ISP was making claims on their behalf. And uh, I um, uh, you don't you don't see that as as much anymore. Um, I, I think what you may be seeing is is plaintiffs using more sophisticated means to. Analyze email because uh-huh. they're dealing with a lot more than they used to. When if it was just ten emails, it was not a big deal. But if you've got three or four thousand emails, um, there, there may be a point where they're building uh, their own tools to analyze header information and in order to you know identify and count emails for various defendants.
2: Well, um, we're running short, so Carl, if people want to find out more information about what you're up to and your firm, what's the best way for them to do so?
3: Well, they would go to my website at krinternetlaw.com, krinternetlaw.com, and we've got summaries of all of our uh, recent Victories in the area of spam litigation as well as information about our entire practice. Actually, a new website we just launched last week. I looked at it. It's very nice. I liked it.
2: And uh, what's the square you guys are off of? Uh, Union Square. Yeah, right off Union. It's a great office, great location, nice office. And um, so um, definitely look up Carlo if you're in San Francisco. And um, I want to thank you for joining us again and congratulations. Let's hope this, it's, this decision has a major impact.
3: Yeah, well, thank you, Bennett. Uh, again, I appreciate you inviting me. Well, all the best. So
2: um, we're going to take a short break. and we come back, we'll do a news update, and uh, we'll close out this edition of Cyber Law and Business Report after these messages. Stay tuned for more
0: of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
4: Plus, build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy. Discover all that the Internet Marketing Ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at InternetMarketingNinjas.com.
0: The best gavel to gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmaster WebmasterRadio.fm.
2: And we're back, and, um, I want to thank Carl again. He's a, he's a great guy, and um, we actually refer cases to each other, and so um, he's someone I think very highly of in this field. A um, couple of news updates. First of all, I want to send a congratulations to my alma mater, Georgetown Law School, which has launched a news center on privacy and technology. And one of the professors is um, Professor David Ladek who um, had been the director of Bureau of Consumer Protection at the FTC for a number of years and so um, definitely look for Georgetown to um assert itself in this space, and um, they're right across the street from the FTC Conference Center down by the Capitol. So um, look for them to be playing a major role. Um, some news coming out of Washington. There's new head of the, um, the criminal division at the Department of Justice replacing my friend Lenny Brewer is Leslie Caldwell. And um, she stated right off from the bat that she is going to be making cybercrime a major priority. And so we're going to look to see what that leads to. And maybe we'll have someone from DOJ on the show. Interesting um, story coming out of Florida. And the um, um, I just keep it, we'll think of how um, Michael Dukakis used to say his name during the presidential campaign. The drug-running um, Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega who's been released from prison in um Florida but is now serving in time in prison in Panama, has sued Activision um based on its um Call of Ops Black o- Call of Duty Black Ops Two game, claiming that there's a, a character there that appears to be based loosely on him and that it, it violates his right of publicity. And um The uh, EFF has been very critical of that and thinks that the case law in that area has gone too far, possibly. But we'll um, maybe have something more on that at a future show. Um, Interesting. Um, So um, say hello to my new friend. Is your Federal Express man, uh, delivery person, a drug dealer? And, well, um, Department of Justice seems to think so. And they have indicted Federal Express for its role in um, delivering illegal online prescription um, drugs. And so there's there's a statement that um, from at least 2004... And Beyond no less than six different occasions, the DEA, the FDA, members of Congress, and their own staff informed FedEx that legal internet pharmacy were using its shipping services to distribute controlled substances and pre- prescription drugs in violation of the Controlled Substances Act and Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. So clearly um, going after the point of distribution as a choke point in this area. Um, the latest revelation from Edward Snowden kind of reminds me of the old Rodney Dangerfield joke. Um, he would say, well, a guy asked me, you got any naked pictures of your wife? And I said, no. And then he said to me, you want some? And apparently Edward Snowden says that um, it's commonplace for members of the NSA to pass around intercepted its accepted naked photos. And um, so... I guess um, Rodney Dangerfield was quite present in that regard. Um, the NSA, um, they have a response, and, uh, but um, we'll see. We'll have more on that later. Now, one thing I wanted to follow up on was last week's show. We talked a lot about the, um, the investigation of Ben Smith into um, Ripoff Report. And what you have there is a systematic campaign by Ripoff Report um, and then, you know, as I mentioned, also I have a, a case involving Vanessa and of Fresno in which, you know, each one are trying to punish um, public participation in uh, our process. They are trying to punish witnesses from testifying, um, punishing people from pursuing claims. And um, we have a concept in the law known as SLAP, um, Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation, where um, in the 70s and 80s, um, people would try to discourage uh, uh, companies from asserting, um, you know, debating, making claims in public debate. Um, You know, for example, environmental groups would be threatened with litigation if they um, criticized some of the, um, you know, oil company practices or whatever. And it was concerned that the threat of litigation would actually lead to a silencing of critics. And so California and now many other states have passed what is known as Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation Act and allows for a special motion. If someone um, does sue you with the intent to silence you, you can file a motion and the court will evaluate the case at a very early stage um, and, and they decide whether it, it merits going forward and thereby saving, you know, all the litigation costs that the, the threat were meant to in, involve. And um, the court is actually um, and then may award attorney's fees um, should the case found to be without merit. And so here well, we have almost like a reverse slap um, to prevent you or discourage you from continuing to express your viewpoint in the court. In the form of the judiciary, um, people like you know, Ed imagine and Vanessa Cachadorian are are punishing you extensively online and elsewhere um, solely for the purpose of making you not want to pursue your claim. And so, should there be a reverse slap claim? Should there be a statute that says if someone? Actively defames you with the sole intent to try to suppress your participation in a investigation, in a government forum, in a trial. Um, should that be criminal, or should there at least be um, some civil remedies and some civil penalties to address that? And that's something I'm going to be fleshing out um, myself in the next couple of weeks. But you know, I think it's a, it, it's worth. Discussion, you know, do, should there be a law now that the the tool of online defamation has become so mechanized, you know, should there be a law to protect people so that this um, can't be used in that fashion? So we will um, be talking about that, and um, but that's all we have for this week. And um, I want to thank Carl um, once again for joining us. It has been a pleasure having him, and. Um, and Can I also thank you, Bennett? Sure. Anytime, period. Brasco. What because, for?
4: Well, because as far as I've learned, uh, you mentioned on your little promo for today's program, you were named one of the most influential e-commerce lawyers by the LA Business Journal.
2: Yes, and in fact, they cited this show as one of the reasons for naming me. So, um Really? Yes, um, you know, the, the work that we've done here, particularly in the work in the highlighting, um, in the write-up, it mentions the work we've done in highlighting the victims of cyber harassment and revenge porn. So, well, thank you, and so I, I, I appreciate the shout-out, and um, but, you know, this is an important forum, and uh, we're here to you know, not only talk about what's going on in the law, but see if we can shape it and um and so we 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 invite our listeners to express themselves as well and um so please let's keep this dialogue going it's been fun um and we're going to keep doing what we've been doing so thank you very much brasco and uh, thank, we appreciate the recognition from the la business journal of course and, and please
4: let me allow me to go ahead and just mention if you want to interact you know we never mentioned enough about the facebook page that we have available for all of you but facebookcom Radio. Make sure to go ahead and like the show. And, and we'll always add new updates out there when we can, especially when it comes up to upcoming programs. If you want to go and interact with us, please do so there. I want to make that point across.
2: And in addition, you know, the, uh, the show has a Twitter page, Twitter account, Cyberlaw Radio. And um, we also have a, a blog that has information on the show each week, um, cyberlawradio.wordpress. And, um, so. And of course, you can go to Webmaster Radio site and look at our archives as well. So um, you know, hopefully we have enough information there for you to, um, even if you you know, listening to past episodes to kind of grasp, um, get the background information on the show, and you know, f- feel free to tell us what you think. You know, it's an ongoing dialogue. This is radio; it's a discussion, and um, we we value your part of it too. So that's all we have here. Um, whoops, Damn, the president just got here. Too late. Um, but any event. Um, have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. This is Ben and Kelly saying quarters adjourned. i talk to you next week on Cyberlaw Business Report.